Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle. Rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could tune in today. I'm very excited about our guest. We have Marissa Landrigan on, and she's got a brand new book out that I highly recommend. I enjoyed it so much. It's called The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. Now, Marissa is a professor um, at the University of Pittsburgh, Johnstown, and she teaches writing, but she is quite a journalist and a writer herself. And I I loved the story in the book, but I loved the way that you wrote it, Marissa. It was so enjoyable to read. I couldn't put it down. Congratulations on your new book. Oh, thank you so much, Jill. And thank you so much for having me. Well, it's my pleasure, and I think that a lot of our Go Green Radio listeners are really going to relate to the journey that you described in the book, your path to deciding what it means to you to eat ethically. A lot of us are trying to figure that out, um, and there are so many obstacles in our path, and you really do a great job of laying out your journey. And so I'd like to start at the beginning. Uh, Talk to us about the role that food played in your family when you were a kid. Sure. Well, I grew up in an Italian-American household. My mother's side of the family is Italian. And so food was everything to us. Uh, Food was really a central point of, of coming together and of connection. We cooked together as an entire family, and these were day-long cook sessions. We ate together. And food was really a way for us to sort of demonstrate our, our love for each other, our connection to each other and to our family and, and to our heritage. Food was really a, a place of community. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of families... Um, you know, that used to be such a staple. Now, today, with our busy lifestyles, things are changing in that regard. Um, but from everything that you wrote, your parents and your grandparents just seemed like these really good, really supportive people. But you describe a t- time in your life when things, you know, that you didn't know about your family's food caused you to feel some distance from them in some ways. And I've experienced a little bit of that myself, and I'll bet that a lot of our listeners have as well. Talk to us about your experience with that. Sure. Well, when I went to college, I sort of discovered the way that food was really produced in in modern America. I grew up in the suburbs. And so before I went to college, I had literally never seen a functioning farm, which meant I just didn't know a lot about where food came from or how it was raised or, or produced. And so when I discovered that at college, specifically when I discovered factory farming and factory farm raised livestock, it was deeply troubling, deeply horrifying to me because I had always sort of distanced myself from it. And unfortunately, in some ways, I sort of associated that distance with my family and with the place where I had grown up. And so I sort of inadvertently blamed them, I think, for for some of that, though, as you said, they were really very supportive and and very good people. Um, And so I became a vegetarian, and this was really a decision that did distance me from my family. The first thing that my mother said to me when I told her that I had decided to stop eating meat was that she was going to have to learn how to cook all over again, which I now, of course, can see as a way of her to support me in that decision. She wanted to still be able to cook for me and include 
include me in the family, but it was for me very much a way of sort of setting myself apart from what I saw as participating in a problematic food system. Mm-hmm. And in the chapter that's entitled Meet Your Meat, <laughs> you describe a really pivotal moment in your life when you decided to become a vegetarian. And I think that there are a lot of people, um, especially, you know, maybe, you know, from people who are in college now who make up a lot of our listenership to people who are, you know, even middle aged this same experience rings true to them as well. So I'd love for you to share that story with our listeners. Sure. Well, it did happen for me in college, and it happened, I think, as it does for a lot of people, uh, with a PETA video, that is, People Mm -hmm. for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, and one of their undercover investigative videos uh, of factory farms, and specifically of of the way in which livestock animals are raised and slaughtered. Uh, There are some really, truly very gruesome and horrifying images that I saw there in terms of the way that animals were treated as they were raised uh, and as they were slaughtered and, and processed for food. For me, what really happened in that moment was a realization that I had never thought about the meat that I was eating as having once been a living animal. So it was really a realization of how much distance I had put between myself and the source of my food. And that was really troubling. And when I saw where the the food truly came from and what that original source really looked like, I really couldn't abide by it. And what followed from the viewing of that video was a classroom discussion uh, that involved people in my college and people my age talking about their own experiences with vegetarianism. There were a number of people who are already vegetarians in that classroom, including, uh, in fact, my professor at the time, who was himself a vegan. Um, and I found their arguments pretty convincing. One of one of my classmates said something along the lines of, "If you can't stomach the idea that an animal is dying." for you to eat, then you shouldn't eat it. Uh, And I really couldn't find a way to argue with that. And so I decided that I shouldn't eat meat anymore. Well, and and I'm wondering, you know, now that you can look back on this and you've gained a lot of wisdom over time, when you look back at, you know, your reaction to what you didn't know and the, the role that, you know, your family played in that, how do you think that parents today should approach this subject with their kids so that they don't end up in that position where they're 20 years old and in college before they see the kind of farm that raised the meat they eat five nights a week? I think that knowing where our food comes from is is so crucial, really having an awareness of, of what it looks like and, and what it means. And I think, luckily, I'm seeing really a trend, especially among some of my friends who now have their own young children, in helping their children understand where their food comes from. I have a lot of friends who participate in um, community-supported agriculture programs, for instance, who often bring their young children with them to the farms on the weekends for, for work share or volunteer or even just to pick up their their CSA share. So the children are allowed to see what a farm looks like. They see and interact with the animals. And I think that's a really important part of teaching our children where their food comes from and how to be good stewards of, of the land and of their own food system in that way. I think one of the reasons that parents tend to shy away from this is because, of course, it leads to some possibly uncomfortable conversations with their children, namely Mm -hmm. conversations about death, right? Conversations that circle around the idea of of an animal dying for them to, to eat. And I can understand that that's a really complex 
thing to navigate, especially with a young child. But I also think that it's a, a sort of integral part of being a human being on the planet. And I think it's important to find a way to introduce those ideas to children. Mm-hmm. I think so, too. And I, I think that I, I'm hoping anyway that we start to see some resources in the same way that we have, you know, cute little storybooks about potty training and, you know, every other subject under the right. sun. It would be helpful, I think, for parents to have some resources to broach those topics in a way that's age appropriate and gentle. So I'm hoping that'll happen. You know, for a lot of people and and actually for a lot of guests that we've had over the last nine years on Go Green Radio, animal rights is really the driving force behind their food choices. And that causes them to become a vegetarian or, or a vegan, like you were saying about your professor. But your journey to ethical eating led you through some other issues as well. And we'll dive into each of of those as we go through the show, but I want to read an excerpt from your chapter entitled Cheese Whiz is Vegetarian, which cracked me up, um, and then I want you to talk about it. This is what you write. You say, I had the best intentions, but I was a child of the suburbs, changing my diet without changing any worldview. These meals were ethical by only one standard, no meat. I was eating bad food because I couldn't cook for myself. I was living the reality of most people in an inner city environment. Fresh, healthy produce was difficult to find and either of poor quality or too expensive to afford when I did. And the fake meat products that became my dietary crutch were chemical creations with a big environmental impact. Talk us through that a little bit, Marissa. Talk us through that issue. Sure. When I first became a vegetarian, I realized that I didn't actually have all that much experience with cooking and eating vegetables. One of the other downsides uh, to having grown up in a family where food was really important was that because my, my mother and my grandmother and the other women in my family were big cooks, I actually didn't really ever learn how to cook all that much for myself. Really, that one's on me. Uh, but it meant that when I actually needed to start cooking and feeding myself as a vegetarian, I didn't really know where to begin. And so unfortunately, what I did was mostly just subtracted the meat from my diet, from an existing diet, from a very stereotypical American diet where a plate usually had some meat, some starch or carbohydrate, and some vegetable. And so I just took that meat away and sort of filled in the rest of the plate with more starch and carbohydrate, really. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I also discovered fake meat substitutes, uh, veggie burgers, tofu, et cetera, and those sorts of things. And so I really didn't reframe my way of thinking about cooking or eating to put produce in the center of a meal. Uh, I really just sort of operated from the same problematic standpoint that I always had, which meant that I really wasn't eating well, of course. I wasn't eating fresh and healthy food. I wasn't eating a diet mostly made of produce. I was eating a diet that was largely made of prepackaged processed food, including some of those fake meat substitute products. So I was really eating things that had a lot of chemicals, a lot of preservatives, a lot of additives, and a lot of the things that were that sort of make up most of what's problematic about a modern American industrial food system, even though I was a vet, eating a vegetarian diet. So it was really just sort of an ethical eater on a technicality. <laughs> uh, that's a great way of putting it. And and I have to say, because we're going to take a quick commercial break to our listeners, um, Marissa can 
turn of phrase. Marissa's book is so good, and I really want you all during the commercial break to keep listening to us on Voice America, but open a new tab in your web browser and Google The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat. This book is a must-have. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with Marissa, so don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%? 43%? Or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all tune in. And if you're just joining us, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Marissa Landrigan. She has a brand new book out that I just loved. It was called. It is called uh, The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. Now, Marissa, there came a point in your life where you moved to Bozeman, Montana. And at that point, being a vegetarian kind of made you feel out of place there. Talk to us about that experience. Well, as I said earlier, Jill, I initially became a vegetarian because I thought that I couldn't really stomach the idea of an animal dying so that I could eat it. It didn't seem like a fair trade-off for me. So when I moved to the West, I, of course, moved right into the heart of hunting culture, where many people take very seriously the idea that if they are going to eat an animal, they themselves should be the ones to kill it. And that made me feel deeply uncomfortable because at the time, I was still really making choices about what to avoid eating, 
basically by distancing myself from the things I didn't want to acknowledge, like the fact that animals so often die uh, for people to eat them. So seeing people drive around Bozeman with deer in the back of their car, seeing people, you know, advertise and be really proud of of their hunts and their kills made me deeply uncomfortable because I really had a problem with actually looking at the idea that an animal might die for food. Mm-hmm. And how do the people treat you? I mean, I, I found it interesting when you mentioned that you were a vegetarian while you were in Bozeman, the reaction that you got. And and I made me think, you know what, I'll bet a lot of our listeners have been treated this way as well. Talk to us about that a little bit. Yes, it was so incongruous to so many people there. It just didn't make sense to them that a person would choose not to eat meat and would choose, in fact, not to eat this entire sort of bountiful, available resource that they really had quite a lot of there in terms of especially deer and elk, which were very large parts of, of the diet and very large parts of the local food system. Uh, lots of people that I met and interacted with have been hunting since they were children and had learned how to sort of dismantle the various animals that they shot and killed themselves since they were quite young. And so it felt to them like someone who chose to avoid all of that really was sort of taking on an air of moral superiority, I think. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, it sort of set us up in opposition to each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You also write about the dichotomy between wanting to cook for your partner, um, but concern that doing so might lead to a life that was the antithesis of feminism. And I know that so many women these days can relate to that. Talk to us about this part of your journey and the connection to food and domesticity. Yes, I really, from since when I was a child, I knew that I wanted to be a really independent, career-driven woman. Um, all my assumptions to the contrary, I actually did have a mother who was an excellent role model in that way. She had her own career, and she was incredibly active in that. She also was the primary cook in our household, with the exception of the occasional, you know, grill burgers out on the backyard grill, <laughs> my mother was really the one who made most of the food. And I saw that it was something that she loved very much, but I also saw that it was something that because she loved it so much, she put so much of herself into it. And I worried that putting that uh, sort of responsibility on myself would mean that I would kind of lose myself in all of that, in the responsibility of, of cooking and feeding for my family. So I, I really took a sort of a stand and, and said in my to myself that cooking was sort of the antithesis of feminism and that if I took on those sort of domestic responsibilities, then I was in some way abandoning my desire to be an independent and career-driven woman. Of course, that's a very narrow way of looking at things, but at the time, I was so nervous about sort of falling into that trap of, of becoming, you know, a, a sort of a homemaker first and only and abandoning my sort of career dreams uh, that I sort of put those blinders on. Well, and what you found is what I found as well, that being an independent woman and independent of the kitchen means that you and your family are dependent on a whole lot of other types of food that um, really maybe just aren't good for us. And so I know when I was 20, I had no interest in getting married, even though I was already quite in love with the man that I've been married to for 26 years now. Um, And at that time, my best effort at a hot meal was warming up canned corn and coupling it with hamburger helper. I really 
at that time had no interest in being a mother and I was pretty sure I'd be terrible at it because as most 20 year olds are, I was a little selfish. Um, But now I'm the proud mother of three. And I, like your mom, I've always worked, moved mountains for my kids. Um, And through my own evolution with food has come a saying that my family and all of their friends are very familiar with. And I say it myself. I say, I spell love (laughs) F-O-O-D. And I, I I cook to comfort and to soothe and to show affection. But I do consider myself a modern and progressive woman. And that's why I felt such a connection with you when you wrote about your time as a nanny and the role that food and feeding another person played in that job. You wrote, the foremost duty the one for which I had, was truly hired, the one that enabled me to feel closest to the baby and his six-year-old brother was the responsibility of feeding them. So, Marissa, tell us about that time in your life and what was going through your mind as your personal identity and your food choices were evolving. Well, Jill, I think that what I was really sort of struggling with was the sense of, of how much of, of ourselves we do tend to put into our food. I also came from a family where we spelled love, F-O-O-D, and that meant to me that if I sort of gave in to that instinct, that pull to put myself, to sort of pour myself into my food and pour myself into cooking as a way of caring and nurturing the people around me, it felt like a really dangerous floodgate to sort of open. I think, honestly, that what was happening was that I was frightened of those sort of competing desires or what I saw at the time as competing desires to be nurturing and to be loving and to, and to sort of use food as a way to nurture and, and love a family, but also still to sort of establish my own identity and my own career. And, I, of course, I was still quite young and hadn't yet found my career footing. I was a writer uh, to be, of course, working as a nanny, and so I wasn't really feeling like I had figured out yet what I wanted and and how to get there myself. So I was sort of afraid to allow myself to feel that level of of love and responsibility uh, for someone or or something else. And so as a result, I I did very much what you were saying that you did in your early 20s. I relied on other people, on prepackaged processed food uh, to sort of feed myself and to feed uh, my family at the time, uh, which was really just me and a live-in boyfriend. And as a result, I wasn't even caring for myself. I wasn't even showing myself love through food. I was feeding myself things like ramen noodles and macaroni and cheese from a box. And I really was sort of trying as much as possible, I think, to shut myself off from that path until I sort of had my own identity figured out. Gosh, I so relate to that, Marissa. And I just know that a lot of the women who are listening right now are nodding their heads. Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. So then in your journey, you moved to California, which is where I live, and I love it. I know it well. And you began to discover what I discovered moving from Illinois, uh, which has its own great, you know, food and, and whatnot. But Then you come to California and there's just this unbelievable amount of fresh produce and farmer's markets everywhere. And at this point, as you were discovering that element of food in California, how were you feeling about eating ethically? 
Oh, I was feeling very good when I first moved to Southern mm-hmm. California. It seemed like everything was fresh and new. It seemed like being a vegetarian there was going to be so easy. And this was finally going to the, be the place where I could sort of do it right, where I really could eat fresh local food rather than sort of processed and, and packaged food. There were numerous farmers markets in the town where I lived at the time every week, and I could keep myself in sort of a constant supply of of fresh produce. And even the grocery stores were a lot easier to sort of shop at as a vegetarian than the ones uh, were in Montana at the time. I had so many more options when it came to meat substitute products and vegetables from all over the world. So as I said, it felt like things were going to be easier in California. It felt like there was finally a match between my diet and the place where I was living. Mm-hmm. And then you met, and I apologize if I say his name incorrectly, Mati Weya. Is that how you say it? That's exactly right. Awesome. You met him, and you discovered some other issues involved with eating ethically that you'd never been exposed to before. Talk to us about what you learned and how you felt when you discovered that this was not new information. It was just new to you. That's right. I was interviewing Mati for a story that I was doing for a local arts and culture weekly paper. I was doing some freelance writing while I lived in Southern California, and I had been assigned this interview because Mati had just been named uh, a waterkeeper, which is a sort of part of a national organization uh, of local volunteers who work to protect uh, the environmental integrity of local waterways. And so I was interviewing Mati about that responsibility, about the work that he did in Southern California as part of that. And one of the first things that he brought up was how incredibly difficult it was to have that role in Southern California, given the massive amounts of toxic chemicals that flowed from the agricultural fields of Southern California into the waterways of Southern California. And I was truly shocked. I thought to myself that I was shopping at farmer's markets and buying local food, and that meant that I was buying good and fresh and healthy food. And so to discover that so much of it was grown still with pesticides and herbicides uh, was deeply troubling to me. And moreover, I discovered that those pesticides and herbicides were also having an extremely negative impact on the people of Southern California, especially the people who picked and harvested that fresh, healthy produce that I was buying at the farmer's market every week. And so I decided to try to learn more about it and discovered, as you said, that This was not new information, that it was just new information to me. And it was the first of of many discoveries I had as a vegetarian that by paying attention only to how I could cut meat out from my diet, I was inadvertently ignoring a lot of the other possible ethical considerations that were a part of a vegetarian diet. Mm-hmm. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we're going to talk some more about that, the human impact of our food, um, not just on the consumer, but on the producers when we come back. But while we're on a break, I'd love for our listeners to open up a new tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com, but take a look at Marissa's book, Google The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat. This book is so well done, and I want everybody to grab a copy of it. We'll be right back with more Go Green Radio. Radio right after this quick commercial break. News. Opinion. Go 
your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. Just a quick reminder to those of you who may are be tuning in for the first time. You know, Go Green Radio has been on the air almost nine years, but it's actually just a small part of a larger organization. The Go Green Initiative, you can Google that or just go to gogreeninitiative.org, is a nonprofit organization that I started back in 2002. We work with schools to provide them with free training on how to do two things, conserve natural resources for future generations, and secondly, to protect kids' health from environmental pollutants. And so Go Green Radio is is part of our outreach, part of our education that we provide uh, to school communities and to listeners around the globe. And if you'd like to be part of that community, we'd love to have you. There's lots of ways to get involved, and you can check out our website at gogreeninitiative.org. If you're just tuning in, our guest today is Marissa Landrigan, and she is the author of a brand new book that I am wild about. It's called The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. And I know that a lot of our listeners on Go Green Radio are looking for ways to eat healthy, to eat ethically, um, to consider all the various aspects of our food system, and to do things right. And Marissa has chronicled in a very entertaining and very well-written way her journey from 
the table of her parents and what she learned about food from that time all the way through to where she is today um, and the various issues that she encountered on her journey to eat ethically. And Marissa, you wrote a really incredibly powerful statement that I wanted to read on air and then have you discuss it. You write, perhaps the worst part of discovering how exploitative farms could be was having to face the fact that I'd learned about animals before I'd learned about people. In no abstract or uncertain terms, this meant the national dialogue about the food industry cared more about cattle than about human beings. Now, Marissa, I don't know how you could have known that if nobody taught you. And maybe more important, for those of us who have or who teach kids, what do you think that we should be doing to ensure that they know about this? Well, Jill, I think that education is so important in this area. One of the biggest problems, as I see it, with the sort of modern industrial food system is that it lacks transparency, that it works really hard to keep us distanced from the reality of the way in which our food is is grown and produced, which of course means that we don't understand how animals are treated on the farm, but it also means that we very often don't get to see and understand the way that human farm workers are, are treated and the conditions in which they live and work as well. So I think the biggest thing that we can do is to try to increase that transparency. And I think that comes from finding a way to to get closer to the source of our food, to find a connection to it. So I think in in practical terms, what parents can do is try as much as possible to show their children what a farm really looks like, to bring them to farms and to visit farms if that's possible in the areas where they live. But I also think it's really important that we consider ways in which we can bring this kind of education into our school systems. It's been a long time since I've taken a home economics class, uh, Mm -hmm. but when I think about some of the things that I learned to do in that class, I think that it probably would have been a little bit better for me if I had occasionally learned what it actually took to grow vegetables or to feed people on a large-scale basis, if I'd actually sometimes visited a farm instead of maybe spending so much time knitting potholders and learning how to bake chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) <laughs> Although everybody loves a good chocolate chip cookie, you know, on a rainy day. But I'll tell you, you know, my kids, my youngest is just graduating from a, a great public high school here in California, high achieving students. They do not even offer home economics. So, I mean, not only are we maybe not including that in the curriculum where those classes do exist, but because of the emphasis on STEM we're, u- we're losing a lot of connection, not just to our food supply, but we're losing the time that we used to spend teaching kids important things about balancing a checkbook. What is a checkbook? They don't even know. Uh, you know, creating a family budget around food and health insurance and all these things. We are not teaching them those skills the way that we used to. So I think you said a mouthful there, and it's something that we should all be considering. You also raised a hugely important issue about food choice and access. And I'd love for you to talk to our listeners in greater detail about what you discovered regarding access to healthy food in this country. 
Absolutely. There are so many barriers in this country to accessing this kind of food. And unfortunately, a lot of those barriers really sort of uh, intersect in a way that disproportionately affects uh, people from low-income environments and people from environments that are made primarily up of, of communities of color. And I think this is one of the things that we tend to very often neglect when we're talking about ethical eating. We focus so much on consumer choice advocating that people shop locally, for instance, and that we choose which kinds of farms to support, that we forget that not everyone has access to those kinds of choices. Um, from a, a very most basic level, one of, of course, the barriers to access is the expense. Um, there is recent research from the Harvard School for Public Health that suggests that eating a healthy diet rich in fruits, vegetables, fish, and nuts costs more than eating a diet made up primarily of processed foods and meats, which of course automatically means that we're not allowing a lot of people to have access to that kind of a healthier diet. And that increased cost is compounded when you include sustainable or ethical food in the mix. Organic produce, as most of us know, is priced higher than conventional produce, and hormone-free grass-fed steaks cost more than their factory-farmed counterparts. So healthy food costs more, but it's also much more difficult to acquire. The kinds of places where we can purchase this food uh, also tend to be really limited and tend to be, again, disproportionately able to be accessed by people who already have a little bit more money and who already have the ability to travel to more places to acquire this kind of food. Uh, it's very rare to see a farmer's market or a community-supported agriculture program in the heart of an urban environment. And that's where the people absolutely need access to that kind of food because those are also people who are less likely to have cars to be able to travel a greater distance out to a farm in order to acquire this kind of food. So I think we really need to work to reframe the food system so that we also are increasing access in terms of uh, the affordability of this kind of food, but also the availability of it in certain kinds of environments. Absolutely. I mean, you think about, and and I work in, in a community where there's only one grocery store, um, and it's on the far west side of town, which is kind of away from the most of the population. And if you're a mom with even just one, but maybe multiple children, and you have to get on a bus, take all those children with you to the one grocery store, fill up a few bags, and only what you can carry, and move your children back on the bus to your home. You're going to have to do that several times a week, um, just out of logistics. And, you know, that it's a nightmare. It's just so hard to procure food, which brings me to a place that you visited where um, it really, really is difficult. There aren't even buses. People are are going by foot, but you visited Ghana with your mom. Um, Talk to us about how you began to reflect on the importance of protein in a human being's diet and how your choice to become a vegetarian in the United States began to look to you through the lens of what you saw in Africa. Well, what I saw in Africa really was just sort of an increase in the complexity of this question of access, specifically the question of who has the ability to make the choice to, say, cut meat out of their diet the way that I did. And what I saw in Ghana was largely um, people who just didn't have 
the ability to make that kind of a, of a decision. It just wasn't a practical decision in any way for them for a number of reasons. Um, one of them primarily, I think, really was the health of their bodies. Um, that This is a country which is still plagued, of course, as, as many African countries are, uh, by diseases like malaria, for example. The family that my mother and I stayed with was an extremely privileged family in Ghana, and they still had all had malaria. Their youngest son an 11-year-old, had been hospitalized for malaria the year before, and luckily he recovered from that. But one of the things that his mother attributed that recovery to was his ability to eat animal protein, specifically uh, goat meat in that case, that she really believed helped to sort of strengthen his body, strengthen his immune system so that he could fight off this disease, uh, which still, of course, a number of people in, in African countries succumb to every year. And I felt a real sort of sense of guilt for the enormous privilege that being able to cut out animal protein was for me because I was able to replace that, of course, with other sources of protein and other sort of uh, nutritional components that allowed me to stay healthy even while I was making that choice. And I saw that not everybody had the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. It was a real eye-opener, and, and I loved that chapter. Uh, it's called Chickpeas for Breakfast, and I, I really loved that chapter because I felt like, um, you know, you were growing from a young woman to a wise woman, and I, I loved the way that you described your evolution there. Now, when you went to Iowa for grad school, you say that you learned to feed yourself, and you mentioned that a chart of organic subsidiary brands of major food corporations, quote-unquote, destroyed you. Talk to us about your thinking at that time. Sure. Well, when I discovered some of the corporate organic connections, it was really almost sort of the last straw for me in terms of disillusioning me from the way in which I thought my vegetarian diet was a really sort of ethically pure diet. Uh, And one of the things that I discovered when a friend of mine showed me this chart that connected organic subsidiary brands to their parent corporations um, was that by purchasing some of the most common vegetarian substitute products, I was still supporting the same corporations that were raising livestock animals on factory farms like I had seen way back in college in that PETA video. Uh, specifically, for, for example, the Morningstar brand of, of meat substitute products is owned by the Kraft Corporation or what is now the Kraft Heinz Corporation. This is the same corporation that produces Oscar Mayer wieners and bacon. So quite literally, I was spending my food dollars in virtually the same place. I was buying Mm -hmm. different products from these companies, uh, but I was still supporting these companies. And that meant, as far as I was concerned, uh, that I really couldn't see my vegetarian purchases as making the kind of impact or making the kind of difference that I had once thought they they were. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was just a really unbelievable moment. And then you talk about seeing um, a young man who looked like a vegetarian, the kind that you used to be, you know, in the, in the grocery store parking lot um, with all of his products and cloth, you know, uh, grocery bags and how you wanted to talk to him about it. But it was really, um, I I love the humility with which you show your evolution um, in this area. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have more with Marissa and her brand new book, The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. Don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. 
Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. So glad that you could all join us. In case you're just tuning in, our guest today is Marissa Landrigan with her brand new book, The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. For me, Marissa, this book was better than Eat, Pray, Love, and that's high praise. So um, (laughs) I thought it was terrific. Now, there's a point in the book where you write about uh, reading Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and the hope that that book gave you. And I know that a lot of our listeners have read that book, but many haven't. So talk to us about how it influenced your journey to eat ethically. Sure. Well, I was really at a time when I read that book where I was beginning to feel like there was no good answer, like there was no solution, there was no way to really have an ethical diet. It seemed that everywhere I looked, I was discovering another ethical consideration that I hadn't initially considered when I became a vegetarian. And so I was really sort of feeling despondent about the question of of how to eat. And so as I read Michael Pollan's book, he really goes through a lot of those same questions as he discovers what he discovers and as he sort of journeys through the industrial food system in that book, he finds a lot of complications, a lot of problems, a lot of questions, uh, and he really sort of struggles with those questions. But he also keeps going, and one of the things that I found such a great source of hope for in that book 
was the idea that by continuing to look and continuing to ask these questions, you could eventually find a better solution, a better way. And ultimately, I think that, that Pollen, by the end of that book, finds a, a sort of way of eating, a way of approaching and thinking about his diet that does feel uh, really ethically sound and that felt really right to me. And so I was sort of inspired to keep looking and, and to keep asking those questions and to believe that there was a sort of a better way out there. Mm-hmm. And that is exactly, you said it right in a nutshell, that is the main crux of all of this, that there is hope, there is a way to eat ethically. It is not necessarily the easiest path, but it is possible to, for, to find that solution that's right for each, each eater. Um, and now the big question, Marissa, how did you come to the decision to eat meat again after so many years of being a vegetarian? Well, as I said, Jill, I was really in a place where I was pretty disillusioned with the vegetarian diet, at least as I had been practicing it. And so I decided to try to talk a little bit to farmers and to find more about the source of my food, the way that pollen does in The Omnivore's Dilemma. And so I started visiting the farmer's market in the town in Iowa where I was living at the time. And, of course, Iowa is really the center of American agriculture, one of the centers of American agriculture. And so I wasn't, I didn't have a lot of high hopes when I went to this farmer's market. I was expecting that I would see the kind of factory farm models uh, that I had learned about so many years ago. But I found something else instead. I found a network of really impressive, really passionate, small-scale, sustainable farmers, people who are doing these incredibly innovative biodynamic farming methods, people who had had their family farms for centuries, and people who felt a really strong commitment to the land and to preserving it and to the livestock animals that they also raised. And these were people who, as I said, had really integrative, sustainable farming practices that included raising meat. And I was at a point where it no longer made sense to me to simply boycott eating all meat because some of it came from a system that I was opposed to. Instead, I decided that it made more sense for me to buy into this new and emerging innovative system of sustainable agriculture to support the new models of farming that I thought were doing the most good, even if they sometimes did include meat. And so I wanted to find a way to to reconnect with the source of my food uh, rather than just putting my blinders on and restricting myself from eating meat to really connect and buy into this system. And so I decided to do that by supporting uh, those farmers in their livestock production. So I bought my first chicken in about seven and a half years. (laughs) <laughs> and you found that it tastes just like chicken. <laughs> After all those years. The cliche is true. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, you open the book with a very, I don't want to ruin it because I want people to pick up your book and read it themselves, but you open it with a dramatic scene, really. I mean, if, if your book becomes a movie, it would be great if it did. Um, <laughs> you know, you're in a slaughterhouse. Um, but it's not just any slaughterhouse. And seeing what you saw helped you, you know, bridge from where you were as a seven-year vegetarian to where you are now. Would you mind talking to us a little bit about that experience? 
Sure. I was really surprised when I found myself there in that slaughterhouse, as, as you know from reading that initial chapter. Uh, it was not something that I ever had expected to do when I sort of set out on this journey. But I had really committed myself to this idea of, of looking more closely at where my food came from, because I really felt like that was the source of my original concerns when I became a vegetarian. It was that I didn't understand where my food came from. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to go back to eating meat, I need to have a really clear sense of where this food comes from and what that really means. And so when the opportunity presented itself, I took it. And I discovered in that slaughterhouse uh, that when you look closely at where your food comes from, it's surprisingly easy to distinguish what feels right to you ethically from what feels wrong. And standing in that slaughterhouse, in that particular slaughterhouse, it didn't feel wrong. It felt like the people who worked there and the people who ran the slaughterhouse had a deep respect for the animals that they were processing and a deep respect for the circle of life that they were really participating in. And I felt like that was something that I really could sort of get behind and support. And so that's really has sort of been my, my guiding principle since that day and, and throughout the rest of my journey is to keep looking and to keep finding the source of my food, uh, to be willing to sort of see where it really comes from. Because I think when you look closely enough at where your food comes from, you can tell for yourself uh, what feels ethically right. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I liked so much about your book is that it's the story of a person with a perpetually open and curious mind, willing to be humble enough to let your mind be changed, to let your opinions and your um, direction evolve as you take in more information and process it. What advice do you have, Marissa, for our listeners who may be on a similar quest to eat ethically? Well, my advice is always to be flexible and to be forgiving because I think that that openness and that curiosity can oftentimes lead to your discovering things that might disappoint you as as I did so many times over the course of writing this book. And when that happens, it's so much better to sort of be be forgiving with yourself, right? And to say, well, I, I didn't know about this, but now that I do, how can I incorporate that sort of understanding into the way that I eat? Rather than sort of shutting ourselves off from that and and sort of being willfully ignorant. I found that it's really easy in eating ethically to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? And to sort of become overwhelmed with all of these different questions and considerations uh, and to really feel like, well, I might as well just give up, right? There's too many things to consider here. Uh, It's too difficult. And so, I'm just going to go eat at Burger King instead. I (laughs) I think if you can remain open, you can be a little bit flexible with yourself and you can say, these are my general principles and I'm going to do the best I can on any given day with the information that I have and the access that I have. Know that you're making a difference even if you're not making every ethical choice at every meal, every day, all by yourself. You know what, Marissa, if Oprah Winfrey still had a talk show, I feel certain that you would be on it and she would apply (laughs) her wisdom to this book. And she used to say this all the time. When you learn better, you do better. And your book personifies that so well. It's a powerful book. I really encourage our listeners to get out there, get this book, The Vegetarian's Guide to Eating Meat, A Young Woman's Search for Ethical Food. Thanks for joining us, Marissa. Thanks to our listeners for joining us. We'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. 
Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.